0: Always, you got to force yourself to have a plan B and a plan C and force yourself. Once you get into like more complex financial models, like you're going to get your best scenario or your middle scenario, your worst scenario, that's something we probably started doing about two years ago. Do it now.
1: Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space and share their best tips and stories and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today are the co-founders of Shaker & Spoon, Mike Miljofsky and Anna Gorovoy. Guys, welcome to the show.
2: Hello. Oh, thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, thank you. Very excited. Good to have you guys. And Mike, we're getting you from the production facility today, so you're right in the middle of the action, right?
0: It just a little to the side and above the action, but
1: yeah. Okay. right, Great. Right. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear about the story. Uh, as I was telling you guys a few minutes ago, this type of product is right up my alley, and uh, I will definitely be checking it out. But uh, for the listeners that don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what the product is and uh, how you guys came to found it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it is, uh, it's is—it's a subscription box for cocktails. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Love it. In its simplest form, we do three original recipes every single month from some of the best bartenders in the world. And we do our best to do as little as possible to those recipes before packaging them up and shipping them all over the country. What we really try to do here is we're trying to be, you know, the truest translation of what you're going to get at those kind of highest end craft cocktail bars and, you know, deliver them to people anywhere where they live in the U.S. So as you mentioned, I am coming to you from from a production facility. We do manufacture the product ourselves, which is kind of exactly how the bartenders are doing it at those bars. So we're making a lot of these specialty syrups, cordials, these really unique flavor profiles, and we're making them in these, we have this kind of proprietary small batch production method that we're doing everything in. And it's really just trying to recreate how it's done at, at a deaf or at a Mario Margo or one of those types of bars. That's what we're trying to do here. It's trying to give that experience to everyone all over the country. <laughs> there
1: you go. Are you guys shipping to all 50 States? Cause it seems like there could be some, you know, restrictions that you're having to deal with there.
0: Oh, that, well, I'm so glad you brought that up. So there's an easy misinterpretation of cocktails, I guess, is just, as having the spirit piece of it being incredibly important. And obviously it is. But for clarity, Shaking Spoon does not actually ship any alcohol at all. We ship everything besides the alcohol. So we do ship to all 50 states. We ship to Puerto Rico, Guam. Uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. We ship to U.S. military bases abroad, and we have subscribers in all of those locations, which which we're really proud of. But for us, what we're trying to do when we're putting our boxes together is we're trying to get you the difficult, challenging components, the interesting pieces of the cocktail that you're going to have trouble getting elsewhere. And the way we approach it is, you're going to pair whatever box you get with one single bottle, be that whiskey, vodka, gin. We're designing our boxes always around a single spirit. And we're looking at it as like that bottle of whiskey or gin is going to be the easiest thing for you to get. So we're going to ask you to get it, which means that we don't have to ship it through basically like as alcohol, which means it's way less, way less expensive. We don't need signature delivery. And it means we can ship to all 50 states, as you alluded Uh, which otherwise would not be true. And we'll ask you to get the bottle yourself. We're assuming that if you're into our service, you have a decently well-stocked back bar. And at the bare minimum, you probably have a liquor store pretty close to you where you can get your basics. And we'll provide you with the really interesting stuff that you're going to have trouble finding otherwise.
2: I was going to say, if you don't already have a well-stocked bar, you will soon. You
1: will soon. Yeah. Yes. I'll help you with that. Are you guys communicating with a customer in advance of the box being shipped to be like, hey, this is going to pair with gin or vodka or whatever so that they can prepare for that?
0: Oh, of course. People are very particular when it comes to alcohol preferences. I would say a huge mission of Shaker and Spoon is to kind of turn those preferences around for people. And that's something that I'm I'm really proud of doing for people. And, and, and when I say that, I was the first person I did it for because I started this journey thinking I do not drink gin. And I drink gin all the time now. I love gin. I just don't love gin and tonics. And I don't love specific gin and tonics. And that is the journey that Shaker and Sweet is going to try.
2: Let's be real, Mike. You probably just had some bad tonic in college.
0: Yeah. and But a lot of people.
2: that a lot of people have had, yes. They had some bad tonic or they had some whatever. And for the rest of their lives, up until they met us, they thought, oh, I hate tequila. I'm a vodka guy. I'm a bourbon girl, you know, whatever. But. As they begin to trust us, even though there's a lot of flexibility with our service, you see what's coming. If you'd rather not try it, you can skip it or you can swap it for a different box. You know, you can really control your experience. But after people have experienced a few months with us, a lot of times they'll start to be like, you know what, this is really expanding my palette, expanding my horizons. I'm gonna give this new spirit a try. And there is a community where many of our subscribers gather, and they're definitely egging each other on to try new things, and it's the
0: best. Yeah, definitely a big piece of the mission. But yeah, just for clarity. Definitely, no one's getting boxes by surprise unless they're not paying attention, but we'll let you know what it is ahead of time and you will always have the option of skipping. We have a very flexible system and then we always have at least four or five other boxes to choose from that are all based around a different spirit. So, you know, if you're coming to ShakeYourSpoon.com and we're speaking right now, we have a gin box offering. Maybe you're like me and we don't have that trust yet and you're not into gin. That's fine. Go get yourself a bourbon box. Go get yourself... Our Niajo tequila box.
2: Yeah, it's been very popular. I should
0: definitely get the Niajo tequila box. It's about to go away, and it's one of my favorites. But yeah, that that one ended up really well. But yeah, get that one. And once we have some trust, I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll try that gin box, because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. But absolutely. We don't have to to start there.
1: Well, I prefer to start there. Gin is my go-to. So in terms of the jumping off point, this sounds perfect for me.
0: I'm so sorry. I don't mean to like be insulting gin. That's... No. No. I'm an equal opportunity. Lush at this point.
1: Yeah, I'm with Anna. You probably started with the terrible gin in college, and that's why, because bad gin is very, very bad. So I could certainly appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. But like, really think about the idea of a cocktail. Cocktail is something that was like first described in basically during Prohibition, and it was created because was bad back then. Basically, you had access to a very low quality of alcohol, and this was how people figured out how to mask that low quality. Luckily, we now have fantastic quality spirits, but the concept is still the same. What we're able to do with the cocktails, we're able to completely change the flavor of what you're drinking, and to some extent, make it kind of unrecognizable, and make it something new, make it something different. And at the end of the day, Cocktails are a mystery to people. And what we're trying to do is sort of demystify them. And once you really understand it, you'll have a clear idea of what you want. And, you know, it's not like, it's not, not every drink is going to be for everybody. That would actually, I think, be kind of terrible, honestly, because it means nothing's exceptional. And what we're trying to do here is create some exceptional drinks. But the hope is that whether you are absolutely in love with it or, not, you will really appreciate it. And, and that's like what we're trying to do. Like when you go to a cocktail bar, you might not absolutely love everything you try, but hopefully you will really appreciate what what went into that drink, like flavor combinations, the experience of it and what we're trying to do. And obviously we very much hope that at least one of the drinks that you try in each box you will be blown away by. But we're kind of hoping to also challenge you a little bit too. That's the goal. We're trying to recreate that cocktail bar experience and it's about getting you just the a smidge out of your comfort zone,
1: too. Yeah, well, hearing you describe that, Mike, it's really interesting. <laughs>
2: I just wanted to say if it challenges you a little too much, then that also teaches you something about your preferences. You know, maybe some aspect of them are not going to change, but the next time you head out to the bar, you don't spend $20 for one drink to learn that lesson.
1: Right, definitely. Well, I'd probably sit in the category of of a target customer for you because, you know, I go out to restaurants with my wife and, you know, we occasionally get to go out to a nicer restaurant and have a good cocktail and they're amazing. But when I come home and want to recreate some of that experience, I honestly don't know where to begin. I mean, I go to gin and tonic because yeah, I probably got some tonic around, but that's about it. So going outside of that, I don't even know where to begin. And I've tried, you know, buying bitters off the shelf and stuff like that. What I end up with is pretty terrible. So I'm in that category of need some education and guidance along the way because I really don't know where to start.
0: Well, Nick, I can tell you like that's I I feel that very much. That's the problem we were really trying to solve because you're probably like me in that case where you have kind of a weird Part of your liquor cabinet that's just stuff that you tried once and then you're probably never going to try again, right? Right. Yep.
1: Never going to use it again. Yep.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that is to me, that's one of the biggest frustrations from an at home perspective on cocktails is it's so easy to find a recipe. There's a million recipes. There's tons of fantastic books. There's tons of recipes online. And it's not that the recipes themselves are bad. It's that we as a public,
2: well, some of them are bad.
0: Yeah, some of them are bad. But like we as a public just <laughs> yeah.
2: And how do you know which ones are bad?
0: That yeah, exactly. Like we as a public don't really understand cocktails. Don't, you know, I don't want to make assumptions, but my assumption is that you go in and you're looking for a few handful of things on the menu that you know and that's like what you're going to gravitate towards but you're generally reading a menu with a little bit of confusion and you're guessing a little bit. And like what we're hoping to do here is avoid those situations because that was me too. And I would, you know, I'm here in Brooklyn, there's like amazing cocktail bars everywhere. And I try to recreate that experience at home and it's terrible. And because I just don't even know, I look at a big book of cocktail recipes and I don't have a clue what out of these hundred recipes will be the thing that I will want. And when I go to a bar, I'll talk to the bartender or like, I already kind of have a sense there, but that's what ends up having you buy like that weird bottle of cream sherry or apricot brandy or like that weird random bitters that you're not using anymore. And what we're trying to do here at Shaker and Spoon is sort of like reveal a little bit behind what goes into that. And I personally, I like to learn by doing. So we're sort of sneakily educating you. We're we're making you make some drinks. well.
2: I wouldn't call it sneaky. I suppose. I think we're pretty explicit about it. I would say to summarize Mike's point is there is a lot of empowerment that we are passing along to our subscribers. The confidence to understand a cocktail menu, browse a cocktail book, to feel like you know what the heck is going on. And we have gotten a lot of feedback from our community that that's been exactly the result. You know, it's not even that Shaker and Spoon is this alternative and you're never going out because maybe you're still going out, but you get so much more out of going out because Now you understand that menu, you know, it's really a holistic mixology experience where all elements are feeding each other. You're empowered to try new things at home. Through your exploration, you feel confident trying more things at the bar. You try something more exciting and exploratory at the bar that gets you thinking about something new to try at home. Maybe you get that technique or that flavor combination next to your shaker and spoon box and on and on, you're building your education.
1: point because I can't count how many times. So
2: I don't think there's anything sneaky about it. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I can't count how many times I've gone to a nicer bar with some custom cocktails and you start reading through them and what's in them and you start going, I know not even half of these things actually are. So there's some education there that would go a long way, even if you still decide to go out. It's not really an alternative, right? It's about educating and appreciating.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really hope that we're not creating a situation where you are never going out again. That's not really the goal. The goal is to all like that.
2: Well, we're not, so don't worry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that is very much not the goal. The goal is to be able to, to demystify the cocktail experience, to certainly to educate and to deliver as an exceptional experience as possible that we can, that we can be excited about and proud of. But Hopefully that experience then just extends into going out, going to bars, going to restaurants. Like Anna says, kind of empowers your decision-making and lets you kind of understand the process a little bit more and appreciate the process a little bit more.
1: Well, let's go back to 2015 for a second when you guys founded the company. Tell us a little bit about what led to the idea, like how you got there, and then what was the impetus for, we're going to take this leap, we're going to start this company?
0: Oh boy. I mean, you know, I say this a lot, but a lot of cluelessness, <laughs> uh, honestly. In a good way? A lot of, a lot, uh, yeah, like a lot of.
2: What... Oh, Mike, you're making us look bad.
0: No, no, no. But like. <laughs> okay. So honestly, a lot of naivete about like what it takes to build something like this. I am genuinely not sure, looking back to it, if I knew the challenges ahead, if I would have embarked, but. You know, once you get going, it's a little harder to stop. But in 2015, it was a few different things. It was honestly a big piece of it was the experience that you and I just talked about of going out to bars, wanting to understand a little bit more, and then trying and failing to do it myself. Getting those random bottles and just feeling like a sucker spending $300 on something that I'm like, I'm not touching this again. I'm not going to throw it out because I spent too much money on it, but it's just going to sit and gather dust. And I feel terrible about that. So it's partially that. Partially, this was a time where Blue Apron, HelloFresh, those meal kits were, that's when they were kind of really, really becoming very popular. Like I know we were subscribed to a few. And it was something that I think is a great product. I'm a fan of those. We're not present subscribers, but I'm a fan of those. And the thing I like particularly about like the Blue Apron model specifically is like It's that we're going to teach you to cook and the way we're going to teach you to cook is just having you cook because that's my favorite way of learning. And then the one thing with that is I know how to cook. And, you know, obviously not everybody does, but like my parents taught me, my grandparents taught me, like I certainly have techniques I could learn, but like, wow, the thing I'd love to really know how to do is how do we make an old fashioned? How do you make a Manhattan? Like, that's what I really want to learn. And that's what like my parents have no idea. They can't teach me. So, I have to turn to, to something outside of myself to learn. And, you know, there kind of wasn't anything really else like that. And one thing led to another. We sort of like, we
1: could do this, right? And I guess we, we could. I think that's awfully interesting that you weren't a bartender before starting this business.
0: Oh, yeah, no, not at all. Uh, it was just an interested customer, somebody who, like, I, it's something I wanted that didn't really exist. Anna and I both have art backgrounds. I was an animator and Anna was a book designer before this. And well, actually, those skill sets have served us very well with with Shaker and Spoon. And we pride ourselves on the visual identity and what how everything looks like. And, you know, that stuff, I know what I used to charge. It can be expensive. So we do have that advantage. It led to some very awkward conversations in the early days when we were talking to like Diageo and everything looked really tip top and professional but you know then we had to tell them like oh yeah we're shipping 20 boxes this month they were like let's talk later uh, <laughs>
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, that you're right. That's a big advantage that you guys have because that's a big part of the experience here, right? Oh yeah. It's not just the drink at the end of the day, it's the experience of signing up for it, the website design, and then of course the box itself, the packaging within it. And if that's near and dear to your heart, you know, that's going to be something you're going to pay close attention to.
2: And all the content that comes with it. You know, we have playlist pairings, we have recommended food pairings, we have the community that I alluded to before we have the happy hours that we host. It's really, and this is actually a point of differentiation. You know, there wasn't a lot then. We do have some competitors now, but we are really the only cocktail subscription service with all of this auxiliary content to complete the experience.
0: And we really do try to like focus it as an experience. And like there is so much that goes into that. And I mean, part of it is like, you know, actually it takes quite a lot of work to make sure those recipes obviously delicious and that takes a lot of work too, but just like easy to follow, easy to do correctly, because the last thing you want is to put all this effort into creating a recipe that then half the people make it at home, do something incorrect and, and it ends up not turning out for them. That's, yeah, that's just the saddest thing. So we really do work to make sure that everything's really easily digestible and not dumbed down. Like it's a very important distinction. If anything, kind of try to keep it as kind of almost as complex as we can, because, again, that sort of recreates that experience that you're going to get. If it's pour this, pour this, and you're done, you're not really making a cocktail. You're making a great drink for yourself, but you're not really like learning what it takes to make a cocktail. So we.
2: Yeah. So we certainly include techniques such as fat washing, that they don't teach you this in school. And uh, as Mike pointed out, while our instructions are easy to follow, they're not oversimplified. And we also have how-to videos for those who are more of a visual learner and want to go a little bit beyond reading the instructions and would like to see how it's executed. We offer that as well.
1: That's great. Tell me a little bit more about the community, because I'll tell you from my perspective, the most successful subscription businesses that I've talked to are the ones that aren't just subscribe and save, right? It's not about that. It's about creating a product experience and then the community around it of people that are engaged in the product. Like those evangelists are worth their weight in gold, right? Especially in an age where customer acquisition is prohibitively expensive in some cases. So tell us your journey of building community and kind of how you guys rally around that.
2: Well, this is certainly not just subscribe and save. You know, first of all, it's an experienced product. And second of all, there's a huge community around it. It's hosted in a Facebook group. We have over 16,000 members in there. We're really proud of the group. It's certainly grown to be more than the sum of its parts. A lot of people in that group have forged relationships outside of it. You know, they're brought together by Shaker and Spoon. They were with each other together through the pandemic. And, you know, as uh, we moved into the stage of the pandemic where vaccines were rolling out and so forth, we had one member who went on a road trip all up and down the East Coast. And at every stop, she was hosted by different Shaker and Spoon subscribers who she met in the group. And they would throw these parties where other local subscribers would come and they would all meet up. I mean, I think to be brought together that way by a brand is really amazing. So we're certainly proud of that. And a lot of people in the group, you know, they're meeting up, whether it's over a digital Zoom or whether in person, it's like, it's truly the Shaker and Spoon family. Thought saw people making these glasses for each other. And they said, like, I survived 2020 thanks to Shaker and Spoon. And Moik and I are not frontline workers, but I'm still very proud. I'm very proud of the work that we did that brought joy to people's lives and was been a very difficult time. You know, it's certainly not a pandemic product for anyone who would pinch and hole us that way. But it was definitely something that brought a lot of comfort to many people during the pandemic and gave them a hobby and a community.
1: Well, take us through how you grew the business. Like in the early days, was it friends and family? Like, where did you start? And then how did you start acquiring new customers? And then, yeah, do take us through the pandemic itself and kind of, you know, how you guys worked through that and what that kind of did to acquisition as well.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. I will say that this definitely started as more of a passion project than anything else. And within that, I don't think we had any particular intentional plans in terms of like, how are we going to grow this? How are we going to acquire customers? This was the first real business for either Anne or I and we've kind of been figuring out as we went along. So it's so it certainly wasn't the most sort of strategic growth plan, but I'm happy to kind of talk about what worked and what didn't work for us. And to some extent, because we went about it slowly and without too much of, kind of clear goal setting, I think it allowed us to be flexible and just to learn over time, which is how we've tried to approach things. So the in the beginning, we were trying to kind of just create organic growth as much as possible. We, we've never raised money for this business. We've never kind of like, we've never been funded. So we kind of always had to use our money in a smart way. And certainly now we, we run pretty sizable advertising budget, but that built over time. And initially we didn't have money to spend on ads or anything else like that. One of our very first hires was a publicist and she worked on getting us press placements. So I remember we were featured on today.com very early on, and that was huge. And a few other media publications like that, and that really grew things for us in a great way. We were very focused on our social media presence which is that was mostly Anna kind of doing that work and, you know, growing our email list and, and just kind of grow, doing People kind of come to me all the time now because we do spend heavily on advertising. We do have a bit of an advertising machine. And they ask me, what do I put money in and how do we kind of grow this? And I don't want to say that I know the exact right answer, but what I try to tell everybody and what I think we've learned is, When you're spending money on advertising, what you're really doing is you're basically paying for somebody to come to your website. And ideally, you're paying for the right kind of person to come to your website, but that's what you're doing. You're paying for someone to go there. And it's just the most expensive thing you can do because you're paying per customer in that way. And because we didn't have that money, what we focused on is not paying for individual people, but rather just like kind of creating an environment where... All of those pieces are going to hit as well as possible. So the press placements worked really well in that they brought a lot of people, but they also created, they've created like SEO links for Google. So we became more visible on search engines. We, we did work. Uh, the other thing for SEO is we have a very rich blog that we keep up to this day, but that was something we started in the early days. Mixology hacks. Writings on like history of different spirits, things like that. And that helped too. always very focused on trying to build some community around ourselves. And it took about probably, I think it was about two years before we really started to actually pay for advertising. And the growth was very slow. It was advertising will fuel things. If you're doing things organically, it will be slow. And it was. But by the time we were advertising, we had created this environment where those ad dollars were just so much more effective. And that's probably the thing I would advise people to do more than anything else. Is like advertising is great, but like get all your other pieces in place first, because at the time that you are literally spending on a per customer basis, you want that money to go as far as possible because it's going to be super expensive. And I'm sure we'll get into this. You've already touched on it, how hard acquisition is these days. So that's always been true, but that's even more
1: true these days. Um, Absolutely. Well, real quick, before we go there, take us through the pandemic. Oh, like what happened? How did you guys react to it? And then what did you see for bringing new members on board?
0: Pandemic was a crazy, crazy time. And I would say that, you know, we were decently well positioned for the pandemic. Obviously, none of us knew it was coming, but we could have been in a better place for sure. But we were in a good place for when the pandemic came to sort of steel ourselves against the challenges and to take advantage of the opportunities. And I think that's honestly-
2: Yeah, and don't forget, we do our own manufacturing. So that was just like, welcome to the supply chain troubles, but also we don't have like a co-packer kicking us off the schedule also.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest challenges obviously is we do our own manufacturing here. Like in February of 2020, we had about 60 people in this space we made everything in about a week and a half or so, Shifted it all out in about four or five days, and that's kind of how we were doing it. And then by April, that had kind of gotten turned on its head, where now we couldn't have more than about 20, 25 people in the space safely, or at least that was like the, the restrictions that we placed on ourselves at that time. And, you know, we still had to get everything out. So... We moved from working about a week, week and a half out of the month, to working the whole month through. We moved to day and night shifts. I personally started running night shifts while the only other full-time production employee we had at that time was doing the day shifts. And it was an insane challenge, honestly, at a time where nobody fully understood. I mean, I don't know if anyone fully understands the virus now, but nobody really understood what was going on. Nobody knew what was safe, what was not safe. I don't think we had a, a national mask mandate until either April or May. We started wearing masks in March. And that was Anna. A- Anna was like, you know what? If, if the hospitals are doing it, we should be doing it. And like, it makes sense. Makes sense, right? Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. I thought it was pretty common sense. Uh, <laughs> well, I had a friend and she had a bridal business and everyone was canceling their wedding. So she was sewing masks for hospitals. And I said, hey, how about I order some masks? for our team because we actually had surgical masks that we were donating to a local hospital because they didn't have PPE. But I was like, we still need something. So we got these cloth masks sewn and we were her guinea pigs. She was sewing them with like different straps and different sizes and just kind of testing on us what worked and what didn't. And she ended up launching a mask business that she was doing instead of the wedding dresses for that phase of the pandemic but yeah i would wash these masks like every night wearing my own mask because it's like you at the same time everyone has and everyone doesn't have the virus and i was like we got to keep these things clean i don't know what to do we rented the party vans
0: oh yeah i mean we're here in new york like you know public transit is like the lifeblood of this city but you know early 2020 nobody felt like it was safe it also kind of it was new york is notorious for the unreliability of our public transit. And it became so much worse. We rented vans to get our staff to and from the facility. That was, I spent, I don't know how long, uh, probably six, seven, eight months driving people. At the beginning of the shift, I'd pick them up, end of the shift, drop them off. It took quite some time before we felt kind of comfortable, like letting that go. And it was obviously, it was a massive, it was costly. It was also just like, there were probably four or five people. Again, I was one of them spending like an hour to two hours a day, just kind of picking people up and dropping them off. But, you know, it's just... Do what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. It's just, what else are you going to do? We were in a very unique position being, we were technically classified as an essential business. I was Just about to ask that question. <laughs> we stayed over. We were, I think, three classifications of essential. We were a food business. We were a manufacturer and then we were a shipping business. So got it from all three of those. And I can't express what a massive responsibility we all felt in being in that unique position where like almost everybody else was locked down, staying at home and we, we were out and we were hiring people. We had two shifts a day. <laughs> and when nobody knew what was happening and where there were people dying every day of this thing, we're just like, well, it's our responsibility. We're having people come here. We have to keep them safe. None yep. of us here wants to be the reason that like people
1: are dead. Of course. So was all the increased shifts because you were spreading everything out or because you saw a big jump in customers or kind of both of those?
0: Uh, a little bit of both.
1: Okay.
2: Well, both at the same time. <laughs> a lot of both.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Initially, it was completely because of just the need to social distance because that was like, we definitely saw a huge increase in customers, but like that really started in April and we already kind of had to make adjustments by, it. we had already made our production adjustments by then. Uh, but yeah, like I can tell you in April of that year, we were expecting to probably ship about maybe 4,000, 4,500 boxes and we ended up shipping about 6,000. Definitely a big jump, but hold on now. In May, we were shipping 10,000 so so that was crazy and so in may is when things really broke down and that's when we went from shipping once a month to we started getting more of like a six-week cycle rather than a four-week cycle and we just we could not keep up and it like you know we had to kind of we that's when we started having to figure out how to balance between well the opportunities obviously there we Have all of these new expenses so we actually like desperately need to bring sales in because my god when we started the year we were spending some percentage on all our expenses and a few months later now we're pausing to do a deep clean of our facility every single hour now we are renting vans and paying people to drive people to and from now we're buying masks we're buying loads of bleach and hand sanitizer and all of these things and it's uh you know, that actually adds up quite a bit. So we oh, and not to mention <laughs> paying everybody hazard pay, which we did for literally the entire year of twenty twenty and then in like well into twenty twenty one as well because it's just what felt made sense to do.
1: The right thing to do. Yeah.
0: Sure. We knew we were putting people in harm's way. So frankly we needed the sales. Um there was no other way to do it. And we kinda had this balance of like, well we sales in but then we can't Fulfill, and it was it was kind of a year of like trying to find the balance between getting the revenue that we need to get to just like sustain the business and making sure that we put, fulfill the orders that we can. And the balance kind of came in a roughly six week like cycle. So rather than every month, we would ship every roughly month and a half, and that's where we felt like you know people, are subscribers were understanding and tolerated that schedule.
1: Hey, That was going to be my follow-up to that question. If you changed the site, what did your end customers, how did they feel about it?
0: Well, I will say, yeah, you can't say it anymore, but in the early days, people really understood that the pandemic affected things and they understood. Uh Yeah. And you know what? It still really does. (laughs) It still does very much. People yeah. are less understanding these days. And, and as a human being living in the world, I get it. I really do. But yeah, in those, honestly, in those early days, it was people were really understanding and they were really appreciative of what we were doing. And and one of the things is us, our attempt to communicate that. Like we were focused on like behind the scenes videos and we were always trying to show like, look, this is what we're doing for everybody. Like we're in here, we're, we're on our, our masks and we are working and we are creating this product for you. And, you know, like we're happy we're able to do it and please bear with us that it's taking us longer and it's harder for us. I think that really resonated with people.
2: Unfortunately, uh, we're moving into a phase of the pandemic where, you know, everyone really wants it to be over. But, you know, the supply chain problems are worse than ever now, actually.
0: Yeah, that's actually one of like that really happened more like mid-2021 more than like was when we really started seeing that consistently. There were problems in 2020, but... Yeah, 2021, like, my God, that turned the business on its head. Um, And then obviously a lot of things that happened in 2021. But yeah, the supply chain thing was, I mean, still it's such a problem and such a challenge for us. And I mean, something that we're still trying to figure out how to deal with and how that changes cash flow, how that changes operations, ordering, timeline, everything. It's one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge of the day.
1: So we were talking about like how you've had these spikes and have been acquiring customers being very groundswell from the beginning and then going up through advertising. What works today? Oh, million dollars. What are you guys seeing? And not only that, but talk a little bit about churn too. Like what are you guys doing to, if customer acquisition costs are so high, what kind of tactics are you guys putting into place to keep the valuable ones that you already have?
2: Well, I wouldn't call this a tactic per se, but... We're very focused on providing a high quality product and a high quality customer experience. So that's kind of points one through ten of how we retain our customers.
0: Yeah, definitely a big focus. And certainly like we want to get technical. We are a lot more focused on first party data. We recently and, and we're I know we're late to this project, but we recently launched SMS list and that's been great for us. Certainly, the fact that we have our community in Facebook, that's a major driver for us. Doing our best to promote word of mouth and getting people to you know, just try to talk about us, trying to kind of generate social media buzz around each box. You know, it's not that there's a single sort of tactic that works, but rather a variety of small things that focus on retention, on customer loyalty and satisfaction. And those are the things that are important. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And at the core, you know, it's a good product and a genuine connection with our community. Yeah.
0: Um, and then I think I didn't fully answer your question there. And I want to Facebook is very much like what we used to scale ourselves to this point, And certainly like what was bringing in those sales in 2020 in particular, as is very much national news. It's Facebook got a bit of a kneecap. In, uh, last spring because of iOS 14 and we, like every other e-commerce brand has felt that extremely. And we're honestly still trying to figure out what is the path forward. I think the path forward to some extent is we have to be a little bit smarter with that advertising. We, you know, obviously want to always, always be as smart as you can, but it does mean that we have to be a little bit more conscientious of our spending because it, yeah, it's just way less efficient. And then we also just have to have a, Just a more kind of well-rounded approach to it. So when we were, when iOS 14 hit last year, we were probably about 95% of our spend was in Facebook. That's closer to about 50% now for this month, which is great. That was the goal. The goal is not zero, but the goal is to drastically reduce Facebook and to bring in a lot of other channels so that you have just a well-rounded strategy around it and that you're, you know, you're trying to hit people in a few different places. What I will say that we are the main kind of advertising strategy we have right now, the main focus is YouTube influencers. That's kind of a big thing that we've been going after. Um, How we arrived at that is the same way we arrive at, honestly, probably most of our tactics and what I would, you know, most advise other people in this place to do, which is Go talk to other people who are better and smarter than you are. And that's what we always kind of try to do. So when iOS 14 hit, that's what we did. We're always in touch with marketers at other like direct-to-consumer companies, other subscription boxes, and just kind of ask them like, well, what's working for you? And, uh, you know, we got a few different answers, but the answers that we got most consistently was YouTube and the YouTube Influencer Program. We started ours around September. So last year is when we started launching those and uh, we're pretty happy with that it's not something that we expect to in any way replace facebook entirely um, and we don't expect to perform the way facebook pre-iOS 14 performed because frankly i don't think anything ever will but we really like that channel something that we personally like about it is it allows us to i don't want to get into something at all controversial but At the end of the day, Shaker and Spoon's a company and we need to spend our money efficiently. And that's always the primary approach. And if Facebook is going to be where we're able to spend our money most efficiently, that's probably where we're going to spend it. But in an ideal world, we're not like we have a decent pool of money to spend and we'd rather not spend it with those corporate behemoths. I don't know how else to put it. You know, rather not give more money to these somewhat problematic corporations that are already have a massive massive influence over all of our lives we'd rather not be part of that and one of the things I, i personally really like about youtube is you know we say youtube but that money is not going to google that money is going to someone who you know is trying to create some content for their fans and like i think that's great i love that i like It's a great channel and it's working and it's bringing customers in for us, but, and that's primary. That's the main thing. So if it didn't work, then the company wouldn't work and the company wouldn't be here and it couldn't advertise anywhere. But something I really like about is the fact this is just, it's money that's going to people who are just trying to find a way to like do something for themselves. And is that what we're all kind of here doing? I love that channel for that reason.
1: Uh, to that end, are you looking at like TikTok as well? Yeah. So sweet. We're actually
0: actively interviewing some TikTok agencies right now. TikTok's been challenging for us. They've been very restrictive with their terms of service, particularly around anything that is uh, what you'd call alcohol adjacent. That platform you probably know started out focused on like a relatively young audience and they don't have much in terms of age restrictions. So I very much understand that they just didn't want anything alcohol related on their platform for a long time, which I obviously understandable, very much respect that as that platform has grown and grown, they've gotten a little bit more nuanced with their policy and their policy is still not the clearest, but we've talked to them and we've gotten a little bit of a wink and a nod, like you guys should be okay. It, it, it does help. In this case, it does help that we ourselves do not touch alcohol. And I think that's why we've gotten through. But we've we've kind of been told we should be okay. And we're yeah, we're going to explore it.
2: Yeah, something to look forward
0: to. Awesome.
1: Last question here at the end. As you guys look back on your seven years of growing up this business, is there one or two lessons learned along the way that if you could go back to your other self and be like, man, I really wish I knew that as I was trying to grow this business and uh, that we hadn't had to go through that challenge or could have done it a different way? Are there any things you know that stick out there? How do you put one?
2: I mean, there's definitely more than one or two things. It's like, how long do you have, right?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I've got I've got mine, and Anna's is probably different. Why don't we each pick one? Anna, you go first. Yeah, great.
2: Sure. Yeah, I wish that we had understood the value of debt at the beginning. And the value of building up the business's credit history, the way that our model works and works at the beginning is first we get the sales, then we buy the goods and manufacture the product and send it out. So we were able to bootstrap that way for a while. And we were like, oh, we don't need any debt. We can just you know, finance it ourselves in this way. And then something like the pandemic happens and you grow very quickly and you learn the hard lesson of how expensive growth is and how... When there's like a money gap, you can't fulfill it yourself, but because you never proved your credit worthiness earlier on, it's suddenly very difficult at this size to do so. That's definitely one of the things that we could have and should have done differently.
0: Yeah, I couldn't second that anymore. But yeah, a lot of smart people told us in the beginning, take out debt when you don't need it. And oh my God, were they smart. Um, and it's hard. It's hard. That's a great one. Thanks for sharing that. And it is a hard thing to force yourself to do that because there's always a million things you could be doing and you don't have time to do more than a handful. Actually, you know, I do have one and I'll mention it, but if anything, I probably would go with that too. Like,
2: did I steal yours?
0: Take like, no matter what, huh? Sorry.
2: Did I steal yours?
0: Uh, maybe, but, uh, but yeah, like do
2: because I have a second one, too.
0: <laughs> no, no, I, no, you got your turn. <laughs> but yeah, like take out work within the financial system, because if you're going to build a company, what people don't realize is particularly when you're successful, growth is expensive. And people say that and it doesn't make any sense. It's true. Like you're going to get to a point where you're going to hit like some sort of inflection point and you're going to realize that you need money. And it's going to not make sense, but you it's going to be true and you're going to need it. And that's going to be the point. Like if you need money and you haven't tapped those resources yet, it's going to be real hard to get. And you're either not going to get it or it's going to be stupid expensive. And if you start out working on that system when you need it, it'll be there and it'll make your life so much easier. So I really can't recommend that enough. And then the other thing and maybe kind of along those lines is. You know, it's a stupid thing to start a business. I mean that with love. I did it and I'm an idiot. (laughs) But generally speaking, and I know it's dangerous to generalize, but you know, people who start business, they do it because they have a natural optimism within them. I'm that to a T. Like I said at the beginning, like we did this because we didn't realize how hard it was going to (laughs) be. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people like the people who I know who are entrepreneurs, that's innate in them as well. Like they're optimists. And you need that. You need that hope. You need to know that there's something better around the corner. And so I'm not. I don't. I'm not saying that to tamper that down. Not at all. But you do need to. You need to learn to balance that because if you're like me, if you're an optimist, you're gonna think that everything's always gonna go right, and it it can't. It literally can't always go right. And so what I would say is, sure, you always want to uh, hope for the best, but you don't want to expect the worst because that's that, that could be a problem for your
1: Yeah. You don't want to do that either.
0: Always you got to force yourself to have a plan B and a plan C and force yourself. Once you get into like more complex financial models, like your standard is always going to be, you're going to get your best scenario or your middle scenario, your worst scenario. That's something we probably started doing about two years ago. Do it now. Plan. Make sure not plan for the worst. But expect that the worst might happen and have a plan for if it does. And be, be ready for that. And I know that is an incredibly hard thing to do, but it is, I can't say enough how important it is because Chicken Spoon not that old. It's, it's We're going to turn seven in October. Not that old. But we have experienced multiple ups and multiple downs already. And at this point, having experienced them, I know that they're coming again and we build it into ourselves. We'll plan for every scenario, and we'll know that like if we're seeing a downturn coming, we'll pivot. If things are looking up, great, then that's wonderful. But the worst, it's not so bad if you plan for it to be terrible and things are good. The opposite is so much worse. So don't become a pessimist, stay optimistic, but make sure you are planning for all scenarios. If you want your business to truly survive, that is incredibly important.
1: Well, you said it back at the beginning. Yeah. Being a little bit naive is actually a good thing when you're starting a business because it is so easy to talk yourself out of it before you even start it. And then once you're down the path, you can find a whole lot of reasons to quit, right? I mean, they're never going to stop. They're always going to be there. You just got to decide whether or not you're going to fight through it.
0: Real easy to find discouragement early on. You know, be careful who you talk to about your idea. Like, It is really easy to find a bunch of people. Like, Getting to that no is the easiest thing because like... It takes no imagination. It only takes one. It, it takes a lot of imagination to get to the yes. Just be careful because the beginning, you know, it's going to take a while to prove it one way or the other. And like, you're going to need that encouragement. So do be careful who you talk to about it. There can be a lot of, a lot of people who can be skeptical.
2: I was just going to say people have like a certain emotional relationship to debt in a personal way. It's really hard to change your way of thinking. And think about business debt differently. It is challenging.
1: Well, this has been a really fun conversation. And you guys have, I loved hearing about the journey and there's been some very valuable insights in there, especially I love the one about credit there. I haven't heard anybody say that, but that's a good point. Use it when you don't need it, not when you all of a sudden do need it. Well, if any of our listeners want to learn more about Shaker and Spoon and sign up or maybe ask you guys some questions about some things we talked about today, where can they go?
0: Shakerandspoon.com. Easy. <laughs> yep, that's the website. We have a live chat. You have all the contact information on there as well. If you if you want to drop us an, an email, we are uh, we're help at shakerandspoon We we're super nice over there. We we have a phone number if you feel like calling us. Again, live chat is great. And then we are at shaker and spoon on all social media.
1: Well, good, uh, well, Mike, Anna. Thanks again so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. And uh, best of luck to you guys. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: That was absolute. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.